Hello. Today's scripture reading is from Acts 2, verses 22 through 33 um, in the CSB translation. If you have a Bible or device, I encourage you to get it out um, and go ahead and turn to those pages with me. Um, while you're getting there, my name is Carrie Garber. My husband, Todd, and I have been coming here for two years um, with our three girls, Brinley, Aisley, and Sterling. Let's hear God's word. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you and through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up from the dead, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in Hades, or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will, find me with, you will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to seat one of his descendants, one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Carrie. Uh, We will be in Acts 2, uh, verses 14 through uh, 41. I encourage you to get there uh, if you do have a Bible. In Acts, we we hit some big passages along the way, and so uh, we are not going to ask our scripture reader to read the entire passage every single Sunday. So we're going to be in looking at uh, Peter's message there in Acts 2. So we are uh, four weeks into a multi-month journey through Acts. Acts records the 30-year story of the early church launching out on its spirit-empowered mission to make disciples of Jesus to all the nations. In the storyline of the book, the resurrected Jesus has ascended to heaven. Before doing so, he told his followers, around 120 of them, to wait in Jerusalem that the promised Holy Spirit will be poured out. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 13, which tell that story of the Holy Spirit filling these 120 disciples, empowering them, each of them, with the manifestation of the Spirit of God. Jerusalem is packed because of the Feast of Pentecost. And so you have all these Jewish pilgrims from all these nations that have traveled to Jerusalem for this feast. And a crowd has gathered because these powerful manifestations of the Spirit among the 120, including that of Spirit-enabled speech. These ordinary, unlearned 120 are now enabled to speak in languages that can be understood by the variety of nations that have gathered together. And so to this miraculous event we see in verses 12 and 13, It says this, that they were all astounded, the crowd, and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. So you had some in the crowd leaning in, curious, seeking to know more about what is happening, and then you had some that are scoffing, sneering at this whole thing, writing it off as if it is drunken gibberish. And into this scene, what we'll see today is a spirit-empowered Peter stand up and give the first recorded public message of this young church. 
He's going to answer the question that they ask there in verse 12 of what does this mean? Well, his entire sermon is basically explaining what does this mean to the crowd. And the Spirit will be at work in this moment and the church will, will grow. It will grow tremendously. 25 times over 3,000 new followers of Jesus. And as we begin to work our way through this text, I want you to see how central Jesus is to the message that Peter is proclaiming. He is not the focus. Jesus is, is who is exalted here. So brothers and sisters, may Jesus continue to be central to the message that we proclaim as a, as a church, central to all that we say and do, that principles throughout the book of Acts, may we follow in that. And Peter's emphasis in this message to the, to the gathered crowd is found in verse 36. It's Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. And because of that reality, it demands a response from the listener. You can't be indifferent to Jesus being both Lord and Messiah. The same is true for us today. It demands a response. And I pray that there might be a sweet spirit of repentance across this place. That those of you yet to trust in Jesus would trust in him today. That those of us who have, that there would be a sweet spirit of repentance and sanctification, next step, next faith walk stepping that would occur. That those of us who do know him, there might be a renewed worship of him as well. So verses 14 and 15, Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only nine in the morning. Just 50 days earlier, Peter was denying he even knew Jesus. Following the arrest of Christ, Peter's asked by a servant girl, Weren't you with Jesus too? And, and self-protective, proud, fearful Peter says, oh, no, 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 I, I wasn't with Jesus. Three times over, does exactly what Jesus said he would do and where Peter had said, no, I will never do that. And it still comes to pass because Jesus is true. Jesus knows Peter is far more reliant upon himself than he should be. Following his resurrection, Jesus restores Peter in a relationship. John 21 tells that story. Peter's no longer walking in shame now. He's walking in forgiveness, in love. And now you have Peter boldly and courageously standing before the gathered crowd and proclaiming that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. In the city that 50 days earlier, the crowd had shouted, crucify him. And Peter, running, fearful, scared a servant girl 50 days earlier, is now standing up. To proclaim that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. Peter was naturally bold. His flesh was prone to make statements and promises that he couldn't back up. He was quick to the trigger. And so here you have the same Peter, bold, standing up to preach, but you'll notice a spirit-empowered change. Now Peter's not making it about himself, whereas he was prone to do that before. Now his focus is to make much of Jesus, because he's filled with the Spirit. That's not to imply by any stretch that Peter's perfect, but he has made progress in the Lord. And we get to see that with the completed scriptures in front of us. We get to see that progress being made that should encourage our own progress. We learn toward the end of the section that Luke doesn't record all of Peter's words in the sermon. So we get the outline, if you will. And to a Jewish crowd that is familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis to Malachi, Peter will end up quoting from three Old Testament scriptures, Joel 2, 
Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. In short, he's telling this Jewish crowd that what they're seeing is a fulfillment of the scriptures that they know. Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection was a fulfillment. The Spirit being poured out in this moment is a fulfillment. What the Lord promised in the Old Testament is now coming, coming to pass, and it demands a response from the listener. So verses 16 through 21. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter's quoting from Joel 2, which foretold that the Spirit would come and be poured out in the last days. Last days referring to the section of human history that we are in. From the first advent of Jesus, his first coming as a humble baby in Bethlehem, to his second coming, the second advent where he will return to judge the living and the dead, victorious, reigning, ruling. Last days gives the impression it's going to be just a short while. Similar to when a speaker says words like, in conclusion, or as we wrap up here, or finally, I mean, your internal clock as a listener starts ticking, right? And you're thinking, you got three minutes. <laughs> well, maybe that's just me. It must just be, maybe. It's, you got three minutes to land this plane, and then you have moments where you're like, it seems like we're taking off again. What is happening right now? You said in conclusion, Right? Again, maybe that's just me. I doubt it. In reality, last days is a long period of time. We're going on 2,000-ish years at this point. In light of eternity, it's brief, though. The phrase last days should remind us of the brevity of life. The reality that on the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, last days are over. So we must be ready for his return, and we must join in the disciple-making mission in the precious, precious time that we've been given. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the, day, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. In the quote from Joel 2, Peter wants the listener to not only connect the dots that what they're seeing in the midst among the 120, the wind, the fire, the, the speaking of unlearned languages is the work of the Holy Spirit. He also wants the listener to have in view that future judgment is to come and that the only way to be delivered from this future judgment is by calling out to the name of the Lord for salvation. And on that day of the Lord in his return, we'll see creation, sun, the moon, the heavens, the earth, We'll see it in upheaval. Peter wrote of that reality as well in 2 Peter chapter 3. At the crucifixion of Jesus, we see the, the sun grow dark in the middle of the day. At his resurrection, the earth shook. In the same way, as the day of the Lord approaches, and on that day, creation will respond in undeniable ways. What Peter is trying to convey to the listener then and now is that 
you're in need of salvation from coming judgment. If the sun were to grow dark this afternoon, you and I would feel ever so small and ever so in desperate need of help, desperate need of rescue, desperate need of someone greater than us to do that work. The Old Testament foretold of the birth of Jesus, it came to pass. It told of the Spirit being poured out, it came to pass. It tells of the great and glorious day of the Lord when he, when he will come again. It will come to pass, loved ones. And we live in these last days, and notice there is hope and there is promise, even in the midst of Peter's warning of a future judgment. And what is the hope in these last days? It's verse 21, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, the Lord is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. So while there is time, loved ones, call on the name of the Lord. And what is the promise in these last days? Is that the Spirit will be poured out on all believers. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was given to specific people for specific times. It was temporary. Now you'll notice in verses 17 and 18 that the Spirit is given to all who repent and trust in Christ. So socioeconomic lines are washed away. Men, women, young, old, high, and low in society, the Spirit is given to all believers, and the Spirit leads to an empowered life for all, for all who receive, including the spiritual gift of prophecy that 1 Corinthians speaks of. Peter's not saying that all will receive that spiritual gift. He is saying that some will have that gift, and at the same time, he's saying that all believers are called to testify to speak, to tell of Jesus, serving as witnesses for him, Acts 1.8. John Piper said of this passage, God's people will be clothed with power. They will receive power. And the main, effect, the main effect of this power seems to be bold, prophetic speech. Believers of all kinds are going to be so gripped by the Spirit of God that they see the greatness of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus with extraordinary clarity and speak it with extraordinary boldness. May we be people led by the Spirit who proclaim, who declare, who speak with great love and boldness the name of Jesus in the life that we've been given. So we're in the last days. The Spirit is poured out. A future judgment is coming. And yet there's hope for all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And who is Jesus? Well, that's where Peter goes next in the, in the verses 22 through 28 where, that Carrie read. And Peter works through four realities of who Jesus is, his birth, his life, death, and resurrection. First of all, Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. He was a man and he lived. He was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, and his life was marked by miracles, wonders, and signs. He gave sight to the blind, healed the sick. He multiplied little in order to feed thousands. Miraculously, he was a man, and he was the God-man. He was and is divine. He always did what the Father asked him to do. He obeyed every command. He lived the perfect life, was without sin. He lived. And then Peter goes to his death in verse 23. He was nailed to a cross and was killed, which was all part of God's sovereign plan. It was predetermined. The suffering and death upon a cross, it didn't take Jesus by surprise. And in Luke 9, where it says, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, 
He knew exactly what was ahead of him. Exactly. And yet he still walked, compelled by love. He knew that death upon a cross to atone for humanity's sin was in his future. And Peter's attesting to two realities here. It was predetermined, it was the predetermined plan of God, and that lawless people were used to kill him. From religious leaders scheming behind the scenes to Romans executing the execution. To, to quote Pastor Kent, God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Both are in the scriptures. And we see both played out here in this verse 23. He was born, he lived, he died a criminal's death, even though he wasn't a criminal. And verse 24, with great triumph behind Peter's words, God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. How beautiful, powerful that phrase is. It wasn't possible for death to hold him. He was the Messiah who came to redeem us from sin through his sacrificial death. He was also the Lord who is God, who has authority in all heaven and all earth, authority over sin, authority over the devil, authority over death itself. And he was raised to life. And then Peter takes the crowd to Psalm 16, written by David, saying that David's words here are pointing forward to Jesus that the greater king than David has come, the king of kings from the family line of David. His name is Jesus. And he was the only, and he was the holy one. The words of David couldn't be fulfilled by David himself because his body did see decay. But Jesus' body did not. The grave could not hold him. He was not abandoned, died on a Friday, rose again on a Sunday. The quote from Psalm 16 here are words of victory. That when our faith and trust is in Jesus, who has been resurrected from the dead, meaning nothing and no one is greater than he is, including the great equalizer death, brothers and sisters, knowing that, then we are on the path of eternal life. Our faith is in him. That we are filled with gladness in his presence. We are never eternally shaken. For we are eternally secure in him. And even when earthly trial and suffering comes and it will, we can rejoice because nothing can separate us from his love. The story of Jesus is not a complex one. It's not a complex one. He was born of a, of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, died on a cross for the sin of humanity, bearing the wrath, the judgment of God. And then he raised a life on Easter morning, walking out of that tomb in triumph. Verse 29, brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, we knew that God had sworn an oath to him in, to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself, David says, the Lord declared to my Lord. 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That last phrase is quoting verse 1 from Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. This is another psalm of David. And King David was greatly revered by this crowd. And, and here David in the psalm is giving reverence and authority to the son who will come from his family line. King David calls this future son who will be born, he calls him my Lord. And the son that will come will come in authority. The son is the one who will sit at the right hand of the father, experience or exercise protection, power and authority for all eternity bringing justice to his enemies, and all will bow before him. Peter's words here are, are seeking to exalt Jesus to his rightful place. That Jesus, the one who was crucified 50 days earlier, was and is the Son of God. He rose in victory, one day will return in victory. He's ruling, reigning, seated at the right hand of God. Knowing who Jesus is, it demands a response. Verse 36. Peter goes on, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Lord and Messiah, the most exalting, succinct titles for Jesus. Lord, think of the word authority. He is the authority because he is God. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Or Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. All his enemies one day will be his footstool. Jesus is Lord. So he has authority over death. He, he holds all authority in heaven and on earth. He's not just a good teacher or a miracle worker. He's God's son, Lord of lords, king of kings. He is eternal. And so Peter's confronting with that title. He's confronting the bent that we all have to be our own authority, to be our own Lord, to call our own shots. Jesus is also Messiah. Think of the word deliverer. He's the savior, the sent one. The one promised throughout the Old Testament, the one who would come to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus, Messiah, would fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. But he, Jesus, was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquity. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all turned our own way, and the Lord is punished him, Jesus, for the iniquity of us all. In the title of Messiah, we are confronted with the humbling reality that we can't save ourselves, that we can't be our own rescuer, that we can't fix the sin problem in our own hearts. We were the sheep who wandered off because of our sin. We were the sheep born in need of a good shepherd to come and lead us home pull us back from death, and the good shepherd has come. His name is Jesus. The Lord has been faithful to rescue and to redeem and to save. Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. Verse 37, when they heard this, the crowd, they were pierced to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Either you're scoffing at Jesus or you're surrendering your life to him in joyful, humble worship. There is no land in between. Indifference to Jesus is rejection of Jesus. Plain and simple. You being neutral, there is no Switzerland. You being neutral is rejection. You're either bowing before him in joyful, joyful worship, not fearful worship, joyful, because he's come to rescue and redeem, or you're scoffing and saying, I don't need you, I'll go be my own savior, or I'm going to go turn to this thing over here, whatever it is, my own works or this thing to try to be my own savior, to, to try to be my savior. Brothers, what should we do? The, the gathered crowd is cut to the heart. They're stunned by these truths. Their hearts are open. Their eyes are open to who Jesus really is and who they are. That they are sinners in desperate need of mercy. They are, guilt they are the guilty in need of forgiveness. They are the condemned in need of salvation. Peter, what should we do? Is there any hope? Verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words he testified and strongly urged them saying be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Repentance is at the heart of the message that's proclaimed throughout the scriptures, including in the Gospels, including in the New Testament church. Repentance is central to our response to the good news of Jesus. Repent, meaning change your mind. An internal change of mind that leads to a change of direction. If I'm walking this way, what leads me to turn around is not my feet. It's not my action. It's my mind. My mind saying, oh, I'm going to turn around and then my feet follow. Repentance is an internal heart change, mind change. And Peter's declaring to the crowd that it's been rejecting Jesus. He's declaring, repent, repent. No longer choose to reject, but choose to receive. Repentance is not something we must do before we come back to God. Instead, it describes what coming back to God is. So it is not clean yourself up in your own strength, make your outward look really, really good, and then come back to God. That's legalism. That's a works-based gospel. It will enslave you and exhaust you. Repentance is how we get clean because the Lord is who washes and cleanses and sets us free. The Lord does that work, sets us free of our shame, our guilt, our condemnation. Repent is a humbling word. Admitting that the path we are on was wrong. And it was dead wrong. And we are not an authority. And we are not our own savior. It's a humbling word, but repent is also, in the same breath, a hopeful word that change is possible. It's possible that you don't have to keep going down that path that grace and mercy are offered from Almighty God, that you can walk in a new way. You can walk in a new direction, a new life-giving relationship with Jesus as both Lord and Messiah. Change is possible. Like real, lasting, eternal change is possible because of the gospel. Peter calls the, 
people to faith-filled action that starts internally in our minds and our hearts through belief and repentance and then goes outward through baptism. Baptism illustrates outwardly what has happened inwardly through repentance. The act of baptism doesn't save. We are saved through faith alone and by grace alone. The act of baptism, baptism matters, though. It follows in the footsteps of Jesus. It fulfills the commands of Jesus. In that day and to this day, baptism is a public a picture of a break from the past, a clear, outward, public profession that a per person has repented inwardly and they're walking in a new way. They've transferred their trust away from themselves and placed it upon the faithful one, Jesus. The baptismal waters are not what make our hearts clean, but they do illustrate that a washing, a cleansing has taken place through faith, that forgiveness of sins has come through repentance, and, and that forgiveness is illustrated as a person goes under the water. They identify with Christ, sin nailed to a cross, buried in a tomb, under the water, dead, but then raised to life. New life in Christ, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And when we repent and trust in Jesus, Peter reminds us that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, how great is our God? All other religions in this world, it is by your effort that you remain connected to that small g God or gods. It's on you. There's no rest. There's no love. It's only constant striving to try to get closer to an elusive God and earn that love and earn that acceptance. But the gospel is God came to us, took on flesh, dwelt among us. The eternal one took on flesh humbly, sacrificially through Jesus, and we are saved not by our effort, but by grace alone and faith in what Jesus has done through his birth, life, death, resurrection. And then when we trust in him, the spirit of God takes up residence in us, empowering us, reminding us that we are adopted, secure children of the perfect heavenly father. God doesn't remain some, on some far off, unable to be reached place, but near with us, in us. We're never alone. And the promised spirit will be with us until the day of redemption, all the way through, all the way through, whether suffering or success, grief or glory. And until we are with Jesus face to face, we get to experience his abundant life and sustaining and strengthening grace in this life. How great is our God? And Peter's saying when we repent and believe and receive the Spirit, it causes generational change. He's not saying children of believers are automatically saved. He is saying that this promise of the gospel was not just for the generation that had gathered in this crowd, but every generation after, including you and I, and every generation after us until the day of the Lord. Every person of every generation is born in need of salvation, in need of deliverance from a crooked, fallen, twisted world, and Jesus is that deliverer. Only he is the way and the truth and the life. And about 3,000 people responded in repentance and baptism that day. What a beautiful, God-glorifying launch to the New Testament church. The poured out promised spirit is at work and continues to be at work in our midst. What should we do? It was the question on the minds and hearts of those that are, that are gathered. To the, to the reality that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, what should we do? Repent. 
Repent, loved ones. Some of you have yet to cross the line of faith for the first time. You're like the gathered crowd. You're cut to the heart. Your, your eyes are open. Your heart is humbled. And today you're saying, I no longer want to walk in, in the way that I've been walking. I want to walk in a new way. I want to repent and receive the promised Holy Spirit and be forgiven of my past, my present, and my future sin. Our God is good, loved ones. He's good. If that's you, tell someone before you leave. Tell a pastor, an elder, me, a friend. We go public with our faith. It never stays private. The New Testament is all about we walk with others. And then, if that's you crossing that line of faith today, let's get baptized next week. The weather's going to be great. We're going to set a baptismal outside. Last baptismal was a sweet, sweet day for me. I got to baptize my son and my, my daughter. Let's do it again, October 1. Let's walk by faith, loved ones. Let's take that and cross the line of faith. Let's, let's walk out Acts 2 and testify to his grace, testify to his goodness. For those of you who already know and trust in Jesus, the call to repent is for us as well, not to receive salvation, not to earn his affection, but because we are loved to walk out our sanctification. So may we actively be turning away from the things of, of our flesh and this world, turning toward Jesus, choosing to worship him above, above all else, trusting him as our good, loving authority who has redeemed us and set us free. For those of you who have trusted in Jesus and haven't taken that step of baptism, let's do that next week. Let's do that next week. Let's celebrate to his and testify to his amazing grace among a faith family who is for you, who loves you, and who is deeply encouraged by your testimony. As we return to singing, we'll pray and uh, we'll sing one song and we'll give our offering as well. So in conclusion, the, pl the plane is landing. I had to make sure I didn't say those words in my own message here. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are both Lord and Messiah. You are the radiance of God's glory. You are the Savior of our souls. Thank you that there is eternal life found in you and you alone. Thank you for your sacrifice upon that cross and that it was a sufficient sacrifice to forgive us of all our past, present, and future sin. Thank you that we are washed and cleansed, clothed in your righteousness. Thank you for your abundant grace. Thank you for the reminder from your word this morning that this life is brief and that you will come again. May we have hearts that are ready, lives that are bowed before you in joyful, faith-filled worship. Thank you for the promise and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Thank you that we are not alone. In whatever next step you have before each of us this morning, may we walk by faith. May we glorify you. May we trust in you and your word and your spirit. Be glorified through our giving. Be glorified through our singing, through our, through our life, our daily way of life, obedience. Be glorified in all things. You are Lord and Messiah, and together we confess that, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Psalm 103, my soul, bless the Lord and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse, he will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens 
are above the earth, so great is his faithful love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him.